Welcome to The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Sunday, April the 18th, 2021. On this edition of The Politocrat, if you are a black person listening to me right now, do you think that being a black person is exhausting? I want to unpack that question, actually, but I do want to gain from you as a fellow black person. If you think that question is the right question, and if you do think it's the right question, do you find being black to be exhausting? Because I have a very different view about that. Listen on, right after this. Dear listener, I want to thank you so very much for listening to this podcast every day to have your ear. It really does mean the world to me. I am so thankful because, you know, I do not take anybody for granted. And I certainly don't take you for granted, dear listener, for tuning in to this podcast. So thank you for doing it. There's lots of things I'm sure that you could be doing in your busy lives. But you have taken the time to listen here to yours truly, to this podcast and to the guests that um, that are on here. And there will be guests coming again in the next little while. So... Do not fret. You will be hearing from persons other than yours truly here. But no matter what, I appreciate the time that you take to listen to this podcast. And I do want you to know that I am grateful to you. So thank you very much indeed for your listening ear, for your time. Because your time is precious. And it means the world to me that you have decided to utilize some of your time listening to the Politocrat Daily Podcast. Thank you so very much for doing so. There are days, this is one of them, when you wonder what your role is in this country and what your future is in it. How precisely are you going to reconcile yourself to your situation here and how you are going to communicate to the vast, heedless, unthinking, cruel white majority that you are here. I'm terrified at the moral apathy, the death of the heart which is happening in my country. These people have deluded themselves for so long that they really don't think I'm human. I had basis on their conduct, not on what they say. And this means that they have become in themselves moral monsters. That was James Baldwin in, I don't want to get the year wrong, so... um... 
I, I won't say the year. It, it was in the 1960s. I'll put it that way. I think in 1963. Uh, actually, it was the nine. It was 1963, when he made that comment on uh, at a round table, um, with Dr. Kenneth Clark, and you can study who Dr. Kenneth Clark was. Legendary figure, um, really important figure. And. That is exactly where we are, and that's exactly what the truth of the matter is. That in the United States, and beyond the United States, but here in the United States, that is the truth of the vast majority of white people in the country. Yes, of course, as I've said, there's always people who, in any group, there's an exception to anything. But again, my job here, dear listener, is not to talk about what the exceptions are or to make anybody, anybody feel comfortable because as tough as things are in people's lives, and of course there are people who have a lot of adversity in their lives right now as I speak. What I am trying to say is as tough as things are, on a level dealing with the situations that are going on in this country of injustice, we all have to be made uncomfortable. And particularly and specifically, white people in the country need to be uncomfortable. Not uncomfortable with black people, but uncomfortable with a system of racism and white dominance and anti-blackness. Black lives matter, and black lives matter forever, and they always have, in spite of the systemic and racist, oppressive, violent forces in the country, the system itself, that absolutely oppresses and tries to break our spirit. So I start with James Baldwin, and then I continue on here to, and I use that as context, James Baldwin's comment, because it really does, and as James Baldwin did so very well throughout his life, got to the heart of the matter. And I use that as the starting point and the contextual background of where the truth of everything is, of where we are. And I use that to get to the bulk of what I want to talk about today in this episode, which is um, whether or not, if you're a black person listening to this particular episode, listening to me right now, do you think that being a black person in the United States is exhausting. And do you think that is the right question to be asking? The reason I pose that question is because there is in the Washington Post today. Actually, it was yesterday that it was written, but you can find it today as well. Um, it was a column by Jonathan Capehart, who you know is 
um, a columnist at the Washington Post. He appears on MSNBC. I've never watched his show. I just, as a, you know, I don't have to go and tell you that I don't watch the corporate news media, but I've just told you that. But the point is, is he has a show on the weekends as well. I do know that much on MSNBC. And he does have a column at the Washington Post, which is a regular contributor to the Washington Post in the opinion pages. And yesterday, Saturday, April the 17th, 2021, Jonathan Capehart wrote an opinion column. And the title of that was Being Black in America is Exhausting. Now, I don't necessarily believe he picked the headline because there are headline writers who do these kinds of things. I am simply saying, though, that I don't know that that's the right question. In fact, not that it's posed in the form of a question, because obviously I just read out the title to you, and that did not have a question after it or a question mark after it. But the reason why I even talk about this, because as I've told you, as you know, dear listener, if you are a regular listener, I have always and often said, particularly over the last few months, that language is very important. And the words that we use when we have conversations about things, but particularly when it comes to issues of racism and racists and systems that oppress and violate our very humanity as black people. We've got to be using language that is not only correct, but also honest. We've got to use language in conversations, in dialogues, in articulations that are not stilted away from what the real issue is. We have to come head on with these matters because these are darn serious matters, to say the very least. And so, while some may think, oh, well, you're being semantical, I, I would re- reply that, no, this is not about semantics. This is really important. What you say and how you say it and the kind of language you are using when in conversation or when writing something about issues like this means everything. And so when I see a title, even in an opinion story, an opinion article that is titled Being Black in America is Exhausting, I automatically do a double take. Because I dare say, and I don't know who put that headline together. I don't think it was Mr. Cape Hart. I don't know who it was. I don't know if the person who was the headline writer, is a black person, is a white person, is whomever. I don't know. But I have to say, being black in America is not exhausting. Because when you say that it is, whether in the title of an op-ed or an opinion story, or whether it's somewhere in the content of your story, what you are implying, whether you intend to or not, is that somehow there's something wrong with being black. And I take full issue with that. 
It is not being black in America that is the issue. And it is not being black that is exhausting. As if there's something about us that presents the issue. Our black bodies, our black souls, our black minds, our blackness is not the problem. What is the problem is the racist white person that we as black people come into contact with on a daily basis. What is the problem and what is exhausting are the racist white persons. What is exhausting and what is the problem is the racist whiteness. What is exhausting and what is the problem is the systemic whiteness and white dominance. That is ubiquitous. That blankets an entire society. That completely acts and makes you as a black person invisible in their eyes, in their culture, in the country. And steals your culture and tries to make it theirs. And makes billions of dollars off of you and off of your labor. As they have done for hundreds of years. And when you and I and our ancestors more specifically were enslaved, that's what they did. It was not our blackness that was the issue, that was the problem. It was their greed and their evil and their violence and a system that oppressed. So I think, and my whole point in saying that, dear listener, is to completely reframe Everything before I even get to the content of what Mr. Capehart writes. And I want to read the entire thing out to you. It's not especially long at all, actually. The entire thing, I should say, the entire uh, opinion article that Mr. Capehart writes, dated Saturday, April 17, 2021, appearing in the Washington Post. But I do want to preface what I read with the what I just said to you, which is why I ask you, as a black person, if you are a black person listening to this, do you think that, or do you think, or do you find being black in America to be exhausting? Because I'll answer it for myself, as I think I already have, dear listener. I don't find being black exhausting. I love being being who I am as a black person. I love being black. I have no apologies for that. Why? Why should I have any? Why should you have any? The exhausting thing is not our blackness or being black. And that's why it's so important here to make that very clear before I even get into the substance of what Mr. Cape Hart has written. And this is not an attack on Jonathan Capehart. I did write him on Twitter last night and sent three different tweets to him. Um, and I made this clear to him in those three tweets. And I also said, look, I completely 
support what you're saying in the sense that I have had the very same experiences you speak of, and I will get into that here in a few moments, dear listener. But I said, I want to reiterate with great respect to you that, you know, it's not exhausting to be black. It's not exhausting because it just, again, and I didn't say this to, I didn't tweet this to Jonathan Capehart, but I just, just want to say again here, please do not get into making any of this about being black, about being a black person. Because our blackness is not the problem. It is dealing with white people who are racist, who have no sense of humanity at all. And who don't take responsibility for anything. Who walk through the world on autopilot. Autopilot in their privilege. Autopilot in everything. And just do not choose to look at what they say, look at what they do. There's no self-examination. There's no introspection. There's nothing. And there's this tremendous doth of any responsibility. D-E-A-R-T-H. There is zero amongst a lot of the people that I am thinking of. No responsibility at all taken for their actions. And then blame it on something or someone else, namely us as black persons. And this is the thing that you've got to point out because when you have conversations about this with people who are not black and who are not brown, They need to be able to understand that the context is key. And when people say, well, it's because you're black, I say, no, it isn't because I'm black. It's because they are racist. When you reframe things like that, you spot the spotlight onto the people who are doing these things to you. You put the spotlight on the system that is oppressing you, that is discriminating against you, that hires you last and fires you first, that burns crosses on your lawn, that denies you an opportunity to buy a home and then allows a white person to buy the home that you as a black person were told by the real estate agent was off the market. Magically, after you've been told that, the next person who comes along who is white is told, no, it's open, it's available. You can come and buy the home. Take a look at it. That's what is exhausting. It ain't us being black that's the problem, folks. So I really want to say that and take the time to say it. And I know those of you listening understand that. I just want to verbalize that for the record, if you will, for this episode. 
that it isn't anything about a black person that is a problem as far as we as black people are concerned. It isn't. Now, the white people who are racist and the system that is racist looks at black people as a problem and treats us that way with its oppression and its violence against us and voter suppression. That's exhausting. That's what they do. So we need to start changing the direction of the conversation and the language and training it more accurately at the forces of oppression and discrimination and racists and racism and redlining and voter suppression and health outcomes that kill black women disproportionately so that in childbirth they die six times more often than a white person does at childbirth that black women are three times more likely to get COVID-19 than white men or Asian men in the states of Georgia and Michigan. And only black men get COVID-19 more often than black women do. And those two groups are the ones that are the ones who get this virus most often, according to recent studies. That's not about us being black. That's about a system that absolutely is so intensely stressful and exhausting and so oppressive as against us as black people that all of these health outcomes that do not favor us are visited upon us. High blood pressure, sickle cell anemia, hypertension, diabetes, prostate cancer, heart disease, a number of other things. George Floyd had heart disease. George Floyd had COVID-19. And I'm telling you, All of these things aren't because we're black. It's because of the oppressive, violent, and racist system. And the enslavement of our people and the wealth disparity, the 500-year head start that white people have in this country. Those are the things that are exhausting. It's not us being black. Now, certainly living in a society that is racist and violent against us. Yeah, it's definitely an exhausting experience to be in a society like that that continues to hate you every single second of your life. But our blackness and our black existence is not exhausting. It's the white people who are racist who are exhausting. It's the insensitive white person. 
It's the callous, unthinking white person. It's that vast, heedless, unthinking white majority that is exhausting. That vast, unthinking, heedless white majority that James Baldwin talks about and talked about in the clip you heard earlier. So I do want to preface that because I do think it is very important indeed. I want that to sink in actually for a few moments. And I want you to think about that because we need to speak about these things in a way that is honest. Not that Jonathan Capehart isn't. And I will be reading you his opinion article in a few moments. But I do want to say that if we're going to have conversations or we're going to be writing or thinking about these things, can we please properly articulate what the real problem is, what the actual problem is, and stop pointing to those who are being oppressed as the issue, rather specifically as the problem perhaps, and start to talk about what the problem is, which is the oppressive, white, systemic, racist society, and the system that punishes black people for existing, and a callous, cold, indifferent, racist, unthinking, uncaring, insensitive white society at large. That's where the focus must be. I'll tell you this, when I left this country in 1948, I left this country for one reason only, one reason. I didn't care where I went. I might have gone to Hong Kong, I might have gone to Timbuktu, I ended up in Paris, on the streets of Paris, with $40 in my pocket on the theory that nothing worse could happen to me there than it already happened to me here. You talk about making it as a writer by yourself, you had to be able then to turn up all the antenna of which you live because once you turn your back on this society, you may die. You may die. And it's very hard to sit at a typewriter and concentrate on that if you're afraid of the world around you. The years I lived in Paris did one thing for me. They released me from that particular social terror, which was not the paranoia of my own mind, but a real social danger visible in the face of every cop, every boss, everybody. I don't know what most white people in this country feel, but I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. I don't know if white Christians hate Negroes or not, but I know that we have a Christian church which is white and a Christian church which is, which is black. I know as Malcolm X once put it, it's the most segregated hour in American life is high noon on Sunday. That says a great deal for me about a Christian nation. It means that I can't afford to trust most white Christians and certainly cannot trust the Christian church. I don't know whether the labor unions and their bosses really hate me, that doesn't matter, but I know I'm not in their unions. I don't know if the real estate lobby is anything Ooh, against black people, but I know the real estate lobbies keep me in the ghetto. 
I don't know if the, if the Board of Education hates black people, but I know the textbooks I give my children to read and the schools that we have to go to. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. There are entertainers and artists, and they've all come to Washington. There's seven out of some 200,000 American citizens who came to the Capitol to march for freedom and for jobs. Uh, will this tremendous outburst now uh, uh, lead to a course of action, Mr. Belafonte? Uh, the now that is being spoken about is the fact that in a hundred years, finally, uh, through whatever the causes have been in history, and most of them have been because of oppression, the Negro people have uh, strongly and fully taken the bit in their teeth. They're asking absolutely no quarter from anyone. But I do say that the bulk of the interpretation of whether this thing is going to end successfully and joyously or is going to end disastrously lays very heavily with the white community, it lays very heavily with the profiteers, it lays very heavily with the vested interests, it lays very heavily with a great middle stream in this country of people who have refused to commit themselves or even have the slightest knowledge that these things have been going on. Welcome back. And those two pieces of audio I played, you've heard before, especially in recent episodes, one of those pieces of audio I've played now for three consecutive episodes. And both pieces of audio come from Raoul Peck's excellent documentary, I Am Not Your Negro, which, by the way, I'm giving away a copy of. Um, for those of you subscribing to the Politocrat Daily Podcast, I will say that you are certainly in the running for... Uh, this particular prize because it's something that, it's a documentary that's indispensable it should be taught in every school in the country and around the world it's a really good documentary and there are others that are really helpful and impactful and insightful and very very educated educating edifying but this one is really one of them it really is the best of the best i, I really do appreciate it greatly. It's called I Am Not Your Negro. The first piece of audio you heard there was James Baldwin talking on Dick Cavett's show, the Dick, the Dick Cavett show, if I can speak, um, speaking in response to Paul Weiss, who um, was a Yale professor, um, who was taking issue with James Baldwin, and James Baldwin is saying exactly what the issue really is, right? And my whole point is, is that we've got to start talking about what the issue is, and instead of talking passively like I think we often do, or not we, but some black people and a lot of white people do, is talk passively about these issues. What the, what the victim is feeling rather than talking about also talking about what the system and what the perpetrators are doing so that this thing completely gets framed in the deliberately in the wrong way so we're focusing on one thing and not the other thing or not the real thing that we should really be focusing on and we're completely ignoring what gives rise to the way we have to behave in the United States as black people in the first place. 
And that's part of what I call a profoundly dishonest type of inquiry and discussion. If we are only going to refer to what black people are doing in reaction to a racist system and an oppressive system and an anti-black system, an anti-blackness and a white dominance system without talking about that particular system itself and analyzing and scrutinizing it and vilifying it and saying, okay, we've got to get rid of a system like this. This system ain't good for our health. Then we're really having a very dishonest inquiry to begin with, are we not? The other piece of audio you heard was that of one Mr. Harry Belafonte, who, thank God, uh, is still with us. The activist and actor, musician, etc., 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 was speaking there in a 1963 Hollywood round table. A clip also, as I said, from I Am Not Your Negro. And he's talking about this. And in the context of he was talking just after the March on Washington, I mean, literally, um, Sidney Poitier was part of that group. Uh, Marlon Brando, Charlton Heston, of all people, was part of that group. And Sidney Poitier is still with us as well, thank God. And there was also a number of others. I think Joseph Mankiewicz, the filmmaker and producer, um, you know, was there too. And, um, you know, those are the people, those are some of the people who were in and, and Harry Belafonte. And so you heard Harry Belafonte's answer from almost 60 years ago, six zero. He said that in 1963, I do think that the burden, and I'm paraphrasing, that the responsibility lies with the vast majority of white people in the country. It depends on them how this whole thing turns out. And he's referring to racism and oppression of black people and whether that's going to end in the United States or not. And Harry Belafonte is saying how that all turns out depends on the white people in the country. Hello? And he said that nearly 60 years ago. And here we are in 2021. And the same question is out there. The same mission is out there. And it's not really changed. It still lies with the vast majority of white people. It still lies with them. To fight and end this. And to be anti-racist. And to bring this system to a halt and get rid of this system. It still lies with them. And as Harry Belafonte said, this vast group of people who have no concept of what the hell's going on and their role in it. And they just obliviously walk on in the world with blinders on the vast majority. I would say 80 to 85% just completely oblivious, don't care, indifferent, couldn't care less. And that's a danger, as I've said before. It's 
dangerous, extremely dangerous for a white person to walk around like that in a society like this. But that's what the system wants. It wants that kind of person because they are then used against black people and against, you know, conscious white folk. And as long as you have the vast majority of white people continuing to pretend that racism ended years ago, and as long as you have white people who claim that they are so anti-racist and they're this and they're that, and yet they don't do anything but continue to benefit from the racist society and don't do anything to get a black person a job to help them out, don't offer a black person as a suggestion, as a, a hire. Oh, we need some vacancy. But you don't actively say, okay, there's a black person I know. You don't may not say the, that there's a black. You may just say, here, this person over here, she's got qualifications. Or you don't even use qualifications because no one says a qualified white person, right? Because there's this racist thing, right? This assumption that somehow every white person is qualified, and they most certainly are not. But there's this automatic thing that flies around in all of our heads, or many of our heads, that we kind of think, oh, this white person must be qualified. And we know that every one of those persons isn't, right? A whole load of people who are white are not qualified for these positions. They get them because they know someone. And then you've got black folk and brown folk out here who have worked and taught for 30 years, who don't know anyone and whose credentials are just top of the notch, top of the heap, king of the hill, A number one, right? And they are not getting any chance at all. But as long as there are white people who say, oh, yeah, I'm down and I recognize that, you know, you've got it really difficult in this country. And I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I'm ashamed or I'm this or I'm that. But yet you are not recommending black people to positions you are not recommend, recommending black people to be hired in your company. You are not putting forth black people. You're not hiring them. You're not bringing black folk in. But you're on Twitter saying how much you are sorry. Or you're on Twitter saying I'm an anti-racist. Or you're on Twitter saying black lives matter. But they don't matter enough to you as someone who may have a little power and a little prominence to include black people in your company that you run or to recommend that black person to someone else's company, a friend of yours who runs a company. And if the shoe fits, wear it. If this applies to you, then... Don't get mad at me. Change the way you do things and actually 
starting on Monday or even before then, starting tomorrow, whenever, start recommending black people to positions. Start recommending people you know of who are black. Do you know any? To these positions. And employ them in your company then, if you care. That's what needs to be done. And Harry Belafonte is correct. No idea, no inclination, not wanting to know. Not only no idea, they don't care, many of these. I'm telling you. People think that I'm somehow generalizing. No. I tell you what's exhausting. It's all of the violence against black people. It's all of this violence. All of these police murdering us. And not getting any kind of jail time. Not getting indicted. Not getting prison time. Serving if they do get convicted, which is extremely rare. Serving less than a year in prison. Serving less than half their sentence. Getting out for time served already. Johannes Messerly. So you don't serve any time for killing Oscar Grant. Only time served. So that you have a situation where Amy Cooper, the white woman, right, who's calling the police and lying to the dispatcher on 911 last year and saying things like, oh, this black man who's watching birds is terrorizing me. He's threatening me. While she's lynching her own dog, by the way, is able to, at the behest of the prosecutor, have charges against her dropped because she attended some sensitivity course. She took a course. And so she was able, because she took some lousy course on sensitivity training and all this nonsense, because that doesn't do jack. You need to change the system. You need to get rid of the system. How is sensitivity training going to do anything in a system that is anti-black? God. How is anti... How is a system... Listen. How is sensitivity training going to do anything when you have an anti-black system, a system of anti-blackness that presides? You're doing sensitivity training in the realm of that system? Come on now. And so you've got an Amy Cooper who, because she took a lousy course that she's probably forgotten and probably forgot five minutes after she completed it, the senior prosecutor Not the defense attorney, not her defense attorney, not her attorneys. The senior prosecutor said, oh, let's drop the charges, judge. Can you drop the charges? She attended a stinking course. Can you now drop the charges on her? Please drop them. Not drop them on her head, but drop them as take them off of her record completely. And the judge says, yes, sir, boss. And the judge friggin' well drops the charges. That's the system. That's the exhausting thing. Not being black. 
What's exhausting is the white people calling the cops on us for absolutely nothing. That's what's exhausting. Sleeping in a dorm room, some white woman calls the police on us in our own friggin' dorm room. Going into our apartment building and some white woman is calling or some white man is saying, what are you doing here? You don't live here. Or some white man is saying, I'm going to take you out of this neighborhood. I don't see you around here. You're not familiar to me. This is a close-knit community. Or having four cops, four squad cars in San Francisco, California, swarming outside your black business as you open up that business because some racist white person has called the police. And so the cops come up to you with their guns drawn. That's what is exhausting. That kind of violence and oppression and terror. It's not us being black. It's the way that white people react to us that is the problem. Not us. Not our blackness. Not being a black person. It's the white people reacting to us. It is the white people reacting to seeing a black person, to seeing us. That's the issue. That's the problem. And their behavior as a result of how they react. That behavior is exhausting. And then we have to react to that. It's not us. Our, our, our issue is not, oh, black being black is exhausting. It's about these racist white people that we come into contact with every day who don't want us in their, in their quote unquote, their neighborhoods, who burn down our homes when we move in, who write racist graffiti on the side of our homes, who threaten us, who death threat us. When we move into a neighborhood, their neighborhood, right? Who, who send us death threats, nooses, right? Who commit violent acts against us. Who burn crosses on our lawns. That's what's exhausting. That racist, violent group. That's what is exhausting. It's not us being black that's the exhausting thing or the issue. It's the racists who are the issue. Your blackness isn't a problem. It's not a liability. It's the system that is the liability. That is making the laws that make you think you are the problem. But it is the system and its lies and its laws and its oppression that are the problem. Then you got people going, oh, I wish I wasn't black. Oh boy. Blackness is not the problem. It's an asset. You should be proud to be black. If you're a black person listening to me, I hope you are proud of who you are.
hope you are proud of your blackness. I hope you love your blackness. I hope you embrace it proudly. Okay, finally, <laughs> finally, I am going to talk about this Washington Post editorial. And look, I, I do think that exposition was needed. Honestly, you've got to give the proper contextual foundation for these kinds of conversations, discussions, writings, so that everybody is clear. Because I think it's kind of, not even kind of, it is dangerous to be framing this as being black in America is exhausting. I think that's dangerous to frame it that way. What about being white in America? Is dangerous. What about if the opinion piece had that headline? Heck, I would make a very strong case that that is the proper headline. How about that? I do think that that is something to consider. But you know, the Washington Post would never ever have a headline like that in any page of its newspaper, let alone on the opinion page. Someone can correct me if I'm wrong. Someone can show me the headline and prove me wrong. But no headline writer is going to write that. And certainly, if the headline writer is white, they're not going to. And I sincerely doubt that a black headline writer would write such a headline. Here is Jonathan Cape Hart's column from Saturday, April 17th, 2021. Quote, Everyone I know is just so tired, tweeted Jenna Wortham of the New York Times Magazine on Wednesday. While the black writer doesn't specify who everyone is, it's a good bet they are also black. And Wortham's use of tired is an understatement. Tired doesn't just refer to the trauma of the Derek Chauvin trial or seeing replays of the video of the former Minneapolis police officer killing George Floyd. Nor does tired just refer to seeing Dante Wright being shot by a Brooklyn Center, Minnesota police officer after being pulled over because of an air freshener dangling from his rear view mirror 
as his mother has said. I want to interject here for a second, dear listener. And I want to say to you that just a few days ago here in San Francisco, I was walking the street and I just happened while I was in the crosswalk to look over at the car that was in the crosswalk. And there was sitting in the driver's seat, a young white woman looking at her cell phone and dangling from the rearview mirror was air freshener. And you know who I immediately thought of. Nor does Ty just refer to seeing Dante Wright being shot by a Brooklyn Center, Minnesota police officer after being pulled over because of an air freshener dangling from his rear view mirror, as his mother has said. Or because of expired tags, as the police said. No, tired is all of that, plus whatever personal trauma we carry with us. There is no one way to be black in America, but there is one way we live while black in America. No matter our gender, age, or socioeconomic status, we are viewed as threats. As a result, we live under siege. We are viewed by threats, Mr. Capehart writes. We are viewed by threats by whom is what I would ask at that point. And again, that's my concern, the passive language that I spoke about earlier. We are viewed by threats, okay, as threats, okay, but tell us by whom. Write who it is that views us as threats. Don't leave that out. It may be obvious to the reader, it may not be, but my whole point is, You've missed a chance to be explicit and clear. Why hide the oppressive forces at play here from your discussion? Because it's kind of dishonest to suggest that being black is exhausting in this country. And yet you don't mention what the threat is that might make it exhausting. And I don't, as I've said to you, I don't agree that being black is an exhausting thing. That's not what is at stake here. I've made it very clear what is at stake. Oh, we do a good job of hiding the stress of it all. But know this, every black person you know goes through some form of mental calculus before they start their day. And then that calculus is adjusted depending on the locations and circumstances in which we find ourselves at any given time. My mother taught me the first few pieces of this calculus when I was a kid. Don't run in public. Don't run in public with anything in your hands. Don't talk back to the police. As I got older, that calculus grew in length and psychological weight. In 1999, Amadou Diallo was killed by plainclothes New York City police officers in a hail of 41 bullets. They thought he had a gun. Instead, it was his wallet. I switched from a silver money clip to a regular wallet after that for fear 
of the reaction to a glint of metal by police. My cell phone cover is always a vibrant color, so no one thinks I am carrying a gun. I never pull out my keys in public until I absolutely have to. Someone might think I'm carrying a knife. At night, I always walk down well-lit streets with lots of foot traffic. Far too many automatically deem black people in dark spaces as suspicious. Far too many whom? White people? Black people? Asian people? Brown people? Old people? Whom? Whom are you referring to? That's part of my point here. Where are the specifics and where is the active language instead of all the passive language? Please explain, 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 spell it out, spell it out. But back to the article. Even before COVID-19, I maintained a social distance, never walking directly behind anyone, especially a white woman. Before I pass at my brisk pace, I always do a shuffle step to alert them to my presence. That's assuming I don't cross the street or take a different route to avoid that whole thing altogether. I do the same when having to pass by an open air bar featuring large groups of white men and alcohol. Whenever I leave my apartment, especially if I go on a head cleansing walk, I always have three things in my pocket. My driver's license, health insurance card, and Washington Post business card with my husband's cell phone number and message to call him in an emergency. You know how you might stop and admire a nice house? I don't do that. My admiration is done on the move. You know how you might take a look inside a sweet car parked on the street? I look from a distance. And as I consider buying a car, my interior color selection will hue toward tan. The better for the police to see inside in case I get stopped for driving a nice car or whatever, which is why my dream of driving across country will remain a dream. Then there are all the little indignities I've had to put up with. The clutched purse by a white woman. The tap of the back pocket by a white man to make sure his wallet is still there. The fitness room that empties shortly after my arrival. The salesperson who talks only to my white husband. Now I want to stop here for a second, dear listener. That paragraph I've just read to you. That last one. Here's the thing I want to point out. Why is there not, and this is not addressed to Jonathan Capehart, really, but in general, why is there not an examination of what white people are doing? 
Yes, it is important for everybody, black people to know, uh, everybody to know, but for black people to say, hey, look, this is what happens to us. But what about an examination of the white people who do this and the paranoia that they have and the racism that they have in their hearts and that they are racist, people who do this? That takes a lot of freaking energy to be checking your purse, clutching your purse, checking your wallet, locking your car door when a black person walks by, making a point to automatically lock your car with your car alarm. So, oh yeah, we all know you've got a car alarm so that when a black person walks by your car, you then go to lock your car, to make a point of it and to do it exactly as we're walking past your car or by your car. Because you are thinking, oh my goodness. That's a pathology about a white person. There's a pathology and a peculiarity and an evil about a white person who would consistently, who would do those kinds of things and do them on the main, specifically when black people are walking the streets. That's where the examination needs to be, right? Yes, it's important that we know, okay, this is what black people go through, but that has been well documented. What I don't think has been done, not nearly enough, if at all, is an examination of the pathology, the racist ways, the peculiarities and the paranoias and the hatreds of the white people who do these things on a daily freaking basis to us as black people. Where's the opinion on that, where's the opinion column on that behavior? Because that's the other side of what Mr. Capehart is writing, is it not? That the examination should be, what the heck is wrong with you folks doing this? What is wrong with you? To the white people who do this, what is wrong with you? That's the inquiry that should be laid on the table and laid bare and point that to white people and ask white people, okay, whether you do this personally or not, what do you think is wrong with these folks? Obviously, yes, they're racist, obviously. But what do you think is going on with them that they continue to do this? Why are they doing this? Because that also makes you something else as well, right? To be constantly doing this? Making sure your wallet's still there? Really? I mean, if I had to do that, I think I'd go out of my mind. There'd have to be something wrong with me. Constantly checking my wallet. I mean, what is that? Yes, it's obviously racist when you're doing this vis-a-vis a black person who's walking by you, mind their business, and they've not done anything for you to even be doing that. You just do it reflexively. So there's got to be something wrong with you also, in addition to you being racist. 
You're paranoid. You're fearful. You're easily afraid. Of what? You've got all these advantages in the society. The society belongs to you. It's created in your image. I mean, just look around. Open up a magazine. All the white faces that stare at you. And say, hello. And yet you're grabbing your purse. You're clicking your... You're frigging... You're locking your door. Eh, 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 with your car alarms. Really? The world, The white world is your oyster. What are you so paranoid about? And fearful about? And racist about? You belong to a group that has all this power. And you have all this privilege. Immense power. You have the luxury of just going home and closing your eyes to all the things that are happening to Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Sandra Bland and Adam Toledo. The vast majority of you do close your eyes to it. And maybe there's a few of you who are out in the street and doing the kinds of things that you should do to try to make this world a safer place for all of us, particularly for us as black folk. And you do your part. But the vast majority of you just go about your business. I'm telling you, Harry Belafonte, 60, almost 60 years ago, said it, and it still applies. We're still waiting. Why isn't there an examination of that in an opinion, opinion column in the New York Times or in the Washington Post in this instance? Maybe there's been some of that. I haven't seen it. Yes, there was a great series a couple of years ago called 1619, the Pulitzer Prize winning series by Nicole Hannah-Jones, the Pulitzer Prize winner. What a marvelous series that was. You should read that. But I'm talking about this also. This is important. Why isn't there that examination? That is the exhausting thing, surely. As a white person, if you're a white person listening to this, would you not regard constantly clutching your handbag of every black person that walks by you, every black man, clutching your hand? Wouldn't you find that to be exhausting and racist? Or do you do that and it's just like a reflex to you? The reflex is a lonely child is waiting by the door. I mean, is that how you operate? Honestly, I, I don't. That's the question that should be asked. It should be by way of challenging the everyday white person who believes that they don't do these things. I talked at the very top about needing to be uncomfortable in this world. And I'm not talking about health things and health setbacks and things in your life that are uncomfortable. I'm talking about on a societal level with the way that people who are black are being treated by people who are white. And by the way that anti-black system treats those black people. You need to, as a white person, be uncomfortable with that. And not sit with that and go home at night and rest your head on your pillow and go to sleep without being troubled. You need to be thinking about stuff like this. Instead of reflexively 
locking your car window when a black person passes by. You need to be able to reduce the damage of your privilege and start to utilize your privilege in a positive way to help black people. That's what the challenge challenge should be and must be. Believe me, not to rain on the parade here of Mr. Cape Hart, but these experiences are nothing new and not to denigrate them. I've had nearly all, well, except for a couple of them, you know, um, as a straight man, you know, what he said there at the end doesn't apply to me. But the point is that in general, what Mr. Capehart is writing about is obviously something that I, as a black person, has experienced, as has every black person, in some way, shape, or form. They'll, I'm sure there'll be a someone out there. Maybe Leo Terrell will be the one, the so-called civil rights attorney who appears on Fox News and says things like, there is no institutionalized racism in the U.S. Maybe he'll be the one who tells me, no, 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 Omar, no, Mr. Moore. I, I've never had experiences with racism, ever, ever. But I am a civil rights attorney who's been fighting racism for 30 years. <laughs> but there's no institutionalized racism in the United States. That's the same Leo Terrell who said that Jim Crow died in 1964, okay? Never mind the 500 pieces of legislation that are being introduced now, much of which has been passed in Republican legislatures all over the country in 2021. But Jim Crow died in 1964. Ha 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 Oh, to be Leo Terrell right now. Oh, to be Leo Terrell. Black man in looks only. Oh, well, let me continue with this this article. The one comfort I take in this harrowing time is that fewer white people will write off what I listed above as petty or paranoid. They've seen the videos. They've heard the wails of distraught families and angry communities, and they are starting to understand the contours of our pain. A white friend in Milwaukee exemplified this recently in a moving message to me on Instagram. Quote, I'm sorry you wake up every morning to a world that doesn't appreciate you, doesn't give you the same rights as your white counterparts, and expects you to give joy and humor just because you are allowed to live. As he implied, being allowed to live compounds the daily offenses I and other black Americans face. We're just so tired of the status quo. We just want to be able to live in peace. Jonathan Capehart there in an editorial op-ed opinion piece story in the Washington Post, Saturday, April 17th, 2021, entitled, Being Black in America is Exhausting. I don't agree with that assessment 
of that headline. But I do certainly agree with what Jonathan Capehart is saying, obviously. And I'm certainly with him on what he says in the substance. I am just really critiquing some things about this story because, again, we need to start putting the lens where it's supposed to be put. And if Harry Belafonte can, back in 19 freaking 63, 63, not 60 F-R-E-E, but it could be 60 T-H-R-E-E, can say, as you heard earlier, that the responsibility of all this, the great responsibility lies with the vast white community and the system of profiteering and the profit, the profiteers. That's where the responsibility lies as to whether this situation of oppression and anti-blackness is going to continue or not. And if he could say that in 1963, why can't an editorial, an opinion story, say that in 2021? With all these killings by cops of black folk and brown folk. Say why? And I really do wonder about that person on Instagram that left a message for Jonathan Capehart. I wonder, and I don't know if Jonathan Capehart edited that or not, but I wonder if that white person said, and I will help you, or and I will use my privilege to help black people, and I will try to get black people hired on my job or at someone else's job, and I will become an anti-racist. Did that Instagram message, Mr. Capehart, to you from this white person, did that message also include that particular mission? Because if it didn't, well, it is really a lost opportunity, to say the very least. So after my more forensic exploration the black people listening to me right now the question is still open do you think that being black whether in America or in Australia or in the United Kingdom or in Sweden or Denmark or anywhere else, Japan, South Korea, do you think that being black, whether you're in Germany or France, do you think that being black is exhausting? Because again, my answer is, hell no, it is not exhausting. Being in an anti-black system, living in an anti-black system, in a racist system, in an institutionally racist and oppressive system that oppresses black people, that's the exhausting thing. And being 
in a world with white people who are racist and who do not care and who think of you as less than human and who behave that way. They don't have to say it. Their behavior shows it, right? You don't get hired. You don't get this. You don't get that. You get marginalized when you're on a magazine cover. They take away your African features and Photoshop something else in. They lighten your skin or they darken it to say something more damaging, supposedly. Remember Time Magazine and Newsweek did that to O.J. Simpson. Remember all of these magazine covers that truncated the blackness and the Africanness of the features of Solange Knowles or of the Peter Nyong'o. I can go down the whole list. All these racist ads for skincare products and these racist and offensive ads that showed a black woman taking off a piece of clothing and after it had been thrown into this product cycle and it's, you know, the product and there's four different pictures, two of them were a black woman and then the third and fourth pictures after she takes off the garment or whatever it is, is a person who is a white woman implying that, oh, now you're clean. And so they actually literally do this transition from a black woman to a white woman who now is clean because we've washed the black off. That's the system, right? That's the environment. The Hollywood movies that attack black people, attack their features, exaggerate and make racist caricatures out of their features, our features. That's what's exhausting, right? The record industry and the racism in it. Hollywood's racism. All of these places. All of these different fronts and systems. Where there are no black owners in certain sports franchises. And no black managers or head coaches in the English Premier League. But maybe one. Bar one. Right? Or none. No Black people. Maybe Nuno Espirito Santo of Wolverhampton Wanderers is the only person. And I don't necessarily know that he's black. But the point is, is that he's not white. Right? That's the exhausting thing. Footballers or any of us as black people getting these racist comments on social media and all these black footballers, right? Who... Play the game, the team might lose, and then they have to get this barrage of racist comments from white people. That's what's exhausting. These racist white people are exhausting. Not being black. I'm proud of being black. I'm proud to be black. And you as a black person should be too. And the people you come from have done absolutely extraordinary things for humanity. Started civilization, started human civilization. Be proud of who you are. Don't let this be framed as your skin color is the problem or you are exhausting. Don't ever let them get away with that. And you know, 
It's exhausting when as a black person, you're playing football or some other sport, but in the case of football in England or in Italy or in France or in Spain or in Poland or Russia, and you have to walk off the field because some racist white footballer or a racist white referee, because there's hardly any black ones at all who referee, has made some racist comment to you during a game. And so you've said, hell, I'm not playing anymore. And it's really exhausting when that happens. It's exhausting then when you get fined for standing up against racism as a black person. When you get fined and suspended for that, while the white person also gets fined and suspended, but really gets fined barely anything that really teaches them any kind of lesson. That's exhausting. That kind of racism, that racism, that oppression, that's exhausting. Over and over and over again, that's what the problem is. That's the exhaustion. That's the health concern. That's what causes the hypertension, the diabetes, all of it, right? The heart disease, that's the exhausting thing, dear listener. There's a lot going on in this world. A lot coming up this week. Closing arguments in the Derek Chauvin trial. And what's exhausting, of course, is all of these verdicts that don't go our way. When there is ample evidence when there's video. It's going to be some kind of week this week for sure. Be proud of who you are. Do not let this culture and this anti-black racist society Define who you are and do not let the anti-black racist society set the parameters of the conversations around these issues because it is literally a cowardly and criminal thing for them to do. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of the politocrat. I'm Omar Moore.